So here at Trinity, we, we love to have testimonies. It's always good to hear how a life has been changed. And it's not just facts, is it? When you hear a testimony, you hear about a whole life. You hear about what people were like, what they've become like, what they do, their identity. There's this kind of whole package that is unique to each person. And so when somebody stands up and gives a testimony, it's always powerful. It's always uh, something special because you get to see something that is really a miracle. You get to see a life being transformed. And today we're going to look at a testimony. We're going to read a testimony. And in some ways, this might be the ultimate testimony ever. This is maybe the most impressive testimony of all time because it's the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to come back and think about him a little bit more. And, and we've seen him for a couple of weeks now in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But now in chapter 4, we see him declaring to the world that God has changed him. And he seems to be changed. And it, it's an exciting prospect, I think, to get to heaven and meet King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not certain, but I'm fairly sure we're going to see him there. Now, the thing that is, is so shocking about this testimony, I suppose, is who he is, but also it's stunning in terms of what it addresses. The lessons that it gives to us are so powerful because you might say, well, hang on a second, I don't struggle with being an emperor of a worldwide kind of global empire. That's just not on my list of issues. And so how can I possibly relate to someone like Nebuchadnezzar? But actually, I think we can all relate to him. We can all relate to him because what he's going to talk about in his testimony is an issue that is an issue for all of humanity. It's the issue of pride. It's an issue that's lurking and lingering right there in our lives all the time. And it may be that we achieve something great and impressive, you know, like a, a work position of ultimate status. And, and, and we're really, you know, whoa, that's amazing. That Then pride can creep in. But actually, pride can creep in in lots of ways. Pride is right there for us in terms of any achievement in our lives. It's a bit like climbing a ladder. When you uh, set yourself a task or a goal, whether it's work-related or family-related or whatever it is, you start climbing the ladder, and the higher you get on the ladder, the more precarious you feel. And so if I go one more step, my right hand gets really tight. It's like you can see the knuckles now because it's getting precarious. Now, Nebuchadnezzar went up an incredible distance. He went to the highest point that anyone has ever been. And we may not be Nebuchadnezzars, but we do climb ladders. We do set ourselves goals, and we sometimes do achieve them. And then pride is right there to get us. Maybe you say, right, I need to lose some weight, or I need to achieve a fitness goal. And you start working, and you start climbing. And maybe you achieve it. Or maybe you set yourself a goal in your family. I'm going to get this child to sleep through the night if it kills me. And it almost kills you, but eventually the child sleeps through the night. And before you know it, you can think, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. Maybe you have a, a goal at work to get to a certain position. Or to get the attention of a certain uh, supervisor. And you achieve it, and very easily you start to think, check me out. Look what I've done. Maybe it's a certain financial goal, a certain level of money in the bank or a certain level of income. And up you climb and it might take you years, but eventually you maybe get to where you wanted to be and before you know it, you're looking 
at your, your hands. You're looking at yourself because you notice when you climb a ladder, you don't kind of look around all over the place. You start gripping. The, the higher you get, the, the tighter the grip. And before you know it, you think, this is my work. This is me. I've done this. And you're hanging on for dear life because the higher you get, the more vulnerable you are. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Here's the man that climbed the ladder to the very peak, to the very highest point probably that any human has ever been to. It's Daniel chapter 4 and uh, page, I believe, 740. Just context-wise, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, this man is, is narcissistic. Okay, he's absorbed with himself. He's uncompromising. He was brutal. In chapter 2, he had a dream. And based on a dream, he was ready to kill all of his advisors. Just wipe them out. That's pretty brutal, right? Uncompromising. Chapter 3, he set up a 90-foot statue. We are thinking about this last week. A 90-foot golden statue of himself, which is incredibly huge. And anyone that wasn't prepared to bow, he was going to throw into a fiery furnace, live cremation. And we know he was willing to do that because three people didn't bow. And he had them bound and he had them thrown in. This man was brutal. Even at the end of chapter 3, after he'd seen this incredible, miraculous rescue and the fourth person in the fire and and these three coming out without even a hint of smoke or uh, the smell of the fire on them, even then, his kind of declaration to the world is that you need to notice this or I'm going to rip you limb from limb. This man was brutal. And you come to chapter 4 and look how he begins. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples... Nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's not the kind of thing you'd expect, is it? A declaration to all the world about how good God is in very nice tones with a declaration of peace from Mr. Rip You Limb From Limb. I mean, this is impressive stuff. And for the rest of the chapter, he goes on to tell the story. It's almost like an evangelistic evangelistic tract. Like, here's my personal testimony. And he's like telling the planet. We're going to read a big chunk. I hope you can... Uh, I'll read it, you just follow. But I hope that's okay. We're going to read it and just let it wash over us because it is impressive what he describes here, uh, starting in verse 4. Basically, he's saying that God warns the proud that they must humble themselves before him. God gives a warning to the proud, humble yourself. Now, like I said, remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar who was very, very high on a very impressive ladder. All right, he'd really gone up high. But all of us, at work, at home, in our personal lives, all of us climb ladders. All of us are going to be tempted to be proud. And all of us need to heed this warning that we should humble ourselves. So let's read it uh, as a, a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, but also as a message for us as well. So starting at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they all came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. There's a title, chief of the magicians. Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher holy one came down from heaven he proclaimed aloud and said thus chop down the tree and lop off its branches strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of uh, iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, we're down at verse 19 now, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. 
And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in which... Uh, in the tender grass of the field and let him uh, be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men. Dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar, in human terms, had every reason to be proud. The image of of Nebuchadnezzar here, of a tree that at the top reaches to heaven and the branches cover the earth and everybody gets what they need from it, like the the birds in the branches and the beasts under the shade of it. Everyone is feasting on this tree. Nebuchadnezzar was that man. In human terms, he had climbed the ladder. He'd begun as a, presumably a soldier. He'd become general of the Babylonian army. Then he was made king or emperor over the Babylonian empire. The empire itself was nothing a hundred years before, but under his rule, it became the greatest empire that the world has ever seen or had ever seen to that point. It was powerful, it was brutal, and he was very much in charge of it. He climbed the ladder. You know how it is when you climb high, you start to feel vulnerable. Maybe you've seen children climbing on those kind of play structure things with sort of the the climbing net on each side, and it's fun at the bottom, but when they get to the top, they love to be king of the castle, but every other child becomes a threat. You know, it's like, no, don't get too close, don't get too close. And they try to to hang on. And it's it's that way, isn't it? When we climb, we, we can feel quite relaxed at the bottom, but when we start to get somewhere, we can start to cling on. We can start to, to, to think, this is, this is my achievement. This is what I've done, and I've got to hold on tight because this thing's starting to sway. I'm precariously perched up here. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in every sense, was justifiably proud. He had climbed the ladder, but he was vulnerable because what he discovered when Daniel spoke to him was who was holding the top of the ladder. You see, when we're, when we're climbing and we're successful, we can think that, that we're achieving something and we can be focused completely here, but at the top of the ladder, there are two pairs of hands holding the thing. And as Nebuchadnezzar's eyes were lifted and he discovered that God was the one holding the ladder, he would have felt incredibly vulnerable. That's true for us as well. 
You see, whatever ladder we're climbing, whether it's the get the child to sleep ladder or get the child to do their, you know, in the right place ladder, or whether it's the um, get the job ladder or whether it's get the income level ladder or whether it's the, the build the business ladder or get the qualification ladder or whether it's the be the cool person in the crowd ladder, whatever ladder we're climbing, it's so easy as we climb it to start to think it's our achievement. I've lost the weight. I've achieved my goal. I'm a success. And I daren't let go. And it's so easy to think that it's all us forgetting that actually God is the one who holds the ladder. God is the one who's in charge of everything. God is the one who is in control of all of those circumstances. You see, it's easy to look at Nebuchadnezzar and think, huh, tut, tut, shouldn't be like that. But actually, we look in the mirror and we find that we're just like that. We find that without without notice we've become proud of ourselves in some area or other. And here God in his grace and in his mercy gives a warning to Nebuchadnezzar and he gives a warning to us. Humble yourself. Step down a couple of rungs. Don't be so full of what you've achieved. Nebuchadnezzar, go down a little bit and start caring for the oppressed. Start demonstrating some righteousness because if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be quite so high and quite so full of yourself. Well, it didn't go very well. Verse 28, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar did not learn the lesson at that point. So verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. By the way, he had three royal palaces in Babylon, at least. One of them had a f- square footage, like a floor space, of 14 acres. Okay, this guy was impressive. Remember, he's a, this is a city with walls around it that you could race chariots on. It was a city with a moat all the way around it. It was a, a city that was divided by the Euphrates River, but he had built a 400-foot bridge uniting the two halves of the city. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, as a pet project for one of his wives. I mean, this guy was impressive, right? He, he really was, but... At the end of 12 months, as he's walking around, the king said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built, <coughs> excuse me, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Check me out. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. And ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. God is able to humble. God is an expert at humbling people. In the New Testament, it says, it's actually quoting the Old Testament, God opposes the proud. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar, climbing his ladder, had achieved incredible things, but God opposed that pride in Nebuchadnezzar. We in our lives achieve maybe slightly more manageable things, but God opposes any pride that wells up within us. He opposes the proud. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he'd climbed so high, you know, twice the pride, double the fall. I mean, he was in trouble. But isn't it shocking how, in, how intense the fall was for him? Here's a guy who, who has uh, all power and, and all sovereignty and all majesty in human terms. And what did it take for God to bring him down from that great height? It wasn't a slow, step-by-step process. It was just a little change in his brain chemistry. He, was, he, he got a mental disorder. It's called boanthropy. It's where a human thinks they are a cow. This is not something you catch by hanging out with cows, so don't be too worried about our dairy farmer in the congregation. But this is a known condition. And all it takes for mental health to go from perfectly good to completely in the wrong direction is just the slightest little thing, isn't it? Just the slightest chemical imbalance. And Nebuchadnezzar was down, chewing on the grass. I mean, literally, God is holding the ladder. And all it takes is that. And the proud person is gone. All it takes is that. And the Nebuchadnezzar's crawling around for seven years. I mean, this was a big deal for an empire. Right? They had to keep him in an enclosed area. There was an embarrassment, lots of press releases and cover-ups and you know, photoshopped appearances and all that kind of stuff because he's in, in, in there with long nails, chewing on the grass and mooing a lot. That's embarrassing, I, I would imagine. Right? But what a fall that was from that incredibly lofty place down to that. How easily we think that our lofty positions of success are secure. I've raised this child right and I've done everything I can, so this one's going to go on for Jesus. Really? I've got the promotion and now I am secure. They're not going to sack me. They're not going to get rid of me. I am safe in my work. Really? I've achieved a very high score in my education. I've got a very impressive CV. I'm going to earn a lot of money. Really? I've worked really hard and my health is better now than it was a decade ago. There's no heart attack coming this way. Really? You see, when we start to cling on and think that we have achieved something, it's very easy for God to take the rungs out from beneath us. It's very easy to just separate that ladder and bring us crashing to the ground because God opposes the proud. But why Does he do it? That's such an important question. Why does God oppose the proud? Is it because God is like the ultimate emperor and he doesn't want anyone getting close? Is God in heaven singing, I'm the king of the castle and you're not going to get anywhere near me because I'll kick you in the face? Is that kind of God's attitude? That he's he's protecting his position and he's not going to let any of us get any credit for anything? I don't think so. There are other gods out there, made-up gods that are exactly described in those terms, but not the God of the Bible. You see, God knows that pride is so insidious and it's so dangerous because it takes our eyes off of him and off of his goodness. 
Pride is, is, is dangerous because we can start to think that we are gods, gods of parenting, gods of work, gods of earning, gods of health. And God is wanting to give us all of these things. He's wanting to give us so much, not just in this life, but really most of all in the life to come. He wants to give. And when we start to cling on and our knuckles turn white and we start climbing in our own strength, God knows how precarious we are. Nebuchadnezzar didn't come crashing to the ground and then seven years later come out of his mental state and cower before the great power of God. He didn't come out and say, right, that's it, I'm sorry, I I, I tried to be impressive, but God is super scary. He came out and he told the whole world to worship him. Something about those years, maybe the seven years that he was you know, mooing and chewing, maybe it was the, the decades before where his chief magician Daniel was talking to him and telling him and advising him about what God was like. Maybe it was the fiery furnace and seeing that fourth one in there. Something had happened because Nebuchadnezzar knew that God doesn't bring people down out of nastiness. God will bring us down because he loves us. Look at how the passage finishes. At the end of chapter 4, from verse 34, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar. Praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Notice that at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar is actually higher on the ladder than before. It's not that God brought him down to keep him down because God opposes the pride, the pride, or the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this is just a description of, of God's goodness and grace to him, lifting him up and putting him in this greater position. But what's changed? His perspective has changed. Now he knows who holds the ladder. Now he's in a position to, to have that position And for it to be a good thing for the sake of others. You see, God is not trying to bring us down to destroy us. It's one of those things that that we can fall into. I've I've heard it uh, even in our circles. The idea that if something makes you feel ashamed, then it's a bad thing. You know, someone confronts you and says, hey, brother, sister, you know, there's this thing and, you know, it's kind of wrong. And they tell you and you feel guilty about it and you feel ashamed and... And what's the fleshly response? Oh, they've made me feel bad. They've hurt me. They're sinful. No, sometimes shame is the right response. Sometimes shame serves a good purpose. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it did just that. And so God will bring us down when we exalt ourselves, but he wants ultimately to lift us up. 
God wants you to be a successful parent. He wants you to to win the battles with your child, including the nighttime ones and the bathroom ones. He wants you to be successful in raising your children. He wants you to climb that ladder, but he wants you to do it remembering that he's holding it. God wants you to do well in work and to earn the money to feed your family. And God wants you to to do well and be able to be in a position of influence so that you can be a blessing to others. But he wants you to do it remembering that he holds the ladder. He wants you to look after your body, to be healthy. It's, It's a good thing to eat well and exercise. God wants that, but he wants you to do it remembering that he's the one in charge of every beat of our hearts. God is the one who rules. We don't. In fact, just to kind of pull it all together, let's look at verse 17. I'll put it up on the screen for us just to kind of bring together the thoughts we've seen here. Here's a a verse that is repeated essentially again in verse 25 and 32. So it's obviously important for Nebuchadnezzar. Know that the most high, let me see if the mic works better this way. Know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. First of all, this first part, the most high rules the kingdom of men. God rules. We don't. It's not us. He's in charge of your family. He's in charge of your career. He's in charge of your education. He's in charge of your health. He is in charge of everything. God rules, not us. Which means when we climb the ladder, we've got to keep in view who's holding the top of it. Instead of focusing on our ever-whitening knuckles and tightening grip. Not only that, the next bit here says... He rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So God rules, but secondly, God gives. We don't earn. God gives. Did you hear that in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony at the end? He's able to say, God gives, gives, gives. God put me. He gave back. When we really are gripped by the goodness of God's character we'll discover that every single thing we have is a gift from him. We've earned none of it. We haven't earned our health. We haven't earned our parenting successes. We haven't earned our positions at work. We haven't earned our education. Really, ultimately, we haven't earned anything. God has given and he's given and he's given again. And we certainly haven't earned our salvation. It's all a gift from him. And as Christians, we can be very quick to say, I don't earn my salvation, but then act as if we earn everything else. It's not true. God gives. We don't earn. And number three, at the end of the verse here, he sets over it the lowliest of men. God gives to the undeserving. That, that truth has to really grip us because if it doesn't, then we'll corrupt the fact that God's in charge and we don't earn stuff. We'll corrupt it and say, well, we kind of earn stuff. But actually, he gives to the lowliest, to the undeserving. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He was quite possibly the greatest sinner of the ancient world, just in terms of his brutality. He was an incredibly great sinner. And at the same time, he was just astoundingly hard in his heart. I mean, Daniel had been working for Nebuchadnezzar and interacting with him for decades. 
And, and he'd gone through chapter two and he'd gone through chapter three and there was hope of change, but there was no change. And he must have felt at times like this isn't going anywhere. This is pointless. Maybe you know someone like that. A spouse, a relative, a neighbor, a friend, someone you care about and you're praying for them and you're praying for them and year after year, decade after decade, you see absolutely no change. That's one of the most disheartening things, isn't it? Just remember Nebuchadnezzar. If ever there was a man in this world who was a lost cause and a hopeless case, it was him. But God got his attention. He was so hard. He was such a sinner. But God got him and placed him, the lowliest, the least deserving of all people, over the world empire of Babylon. These three truths, let's put them all up, Mike. These three truths are so important for us. God rules, not us, in every sphere of life. God gives, we don't earn. And God gives to the undeserving. This is true with all the ladders that we are climbing day by day by day. But there's one more thing that I want us to see before we move into a time of communion. Something that ultimately is it takes this passage and it makes you go, whoa, that's cool. Because Nebuchadnezzar had had decades of testimony from Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had had experiences of God's power through Daniel, the interpretation of dreams and so on. Nebuchadnezzar had been incredibly humbled by his seven-year case of boanthropy. He'd gone through an incredible amount. And by the end of his testimony, he's able to say that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Okay, that's essentially the the, the last line of the passage. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And that's a truth for us as well. That's a, a reality that we need to keep in mind because he's ready to oppose us the moment pride rears its head in our hearts. Whether it's at home or health, the things we've mentioned, whether it's church life, Look at this church that we have built. Ooh, careful. It would be so easy to start to focus on where we've got to and to lose sight of whose church it is. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar was able to finish his testimony by saying, wow, look at God and celebrate him. He's in charge. And he's not saying it through gritted teeth. He's saying it with joy and with delight. How much more can we say that? How much more can our hearts be stirred? Because we're not in Nebuchadnezzar's situation. We've got the rest of the story. And what's the rest of the story tell us? Let's put it up on the screen as we finish here. God never asks us to do something that he has not done first himself. God is ruling over everything. And he asks us to humble ourselves. But what has he done first? The king over the entire universe, the the king over the cosmos has come into this world and he's gone to the cross and he's been absolutely, utterly humiliated for us. That's what communion's about. It's it's like a more vivid dream than than any Nebuchadnezzar had. It's like the most vivid image of a body uh, given and blood shed so that we know that as we choose to go into this week humble, 
as we go out into, into the, the various spheres of life and back to the various ladders that we're on, with a humility, we do so knowing that the one who holds the ladders, the one who rules over all, the one who's in charge of our lives, is the one who first of all has gone to the cross, who's been utterly humiliated and now asks us to humble ourselves before him. Let me pray and then I'm going to hand over to Andy who's going to lead us into a time of communion. Father, I just want to say thank you that you are in charge and we're not. Thank you that everything we have and we have so, so much is ours because of your giving, not because of our earning. And Lord, we sit here as proof of the fact that you give to those who don't deserve it. Lord, I pray that our lives as a community of your people would be marked by humility. A humility that, that works and climbs and serves and gives and does all that we're called to do, but does it always aware of who's holding the ladder, of who's in charge. And Lord, we just want to thank you that the hands that hold the top of the ladder are nail-pierced hands. You know what you're asking for. You know what it takes You know what it means to be humble because you were first humiliated for us. And so, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for what you've done. And we pray that you would work in our hearts, in our lives, that our testimonies might be as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar's, not because of what we've achieved, but because of the change that you've brought in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.